Chapter 2. The Daydreamer. Passion for football in the state of Alabama was defined by one play at the 1954 Cotton Bowl in Dallas in a game between Bama and Rice University of Houston. A replay of that fateful moment was the lead film footage of every Cotton Bowl game on New Year's Day television for many years afterwards. The film shows star halfback Dickie Magel of Rice bursting to the outside from a play that started on the Rice five-yard line. Around the Bama defense, down the sideline, headed for the end zone. No Bama player was close to catching him. But wait! He gets tackled! How? Tommy Lewis, who was not one of the 11 tied defenders on the field on that particular play, but who was standing on the sidelines, inserted himself into the action. In other words, it didn't matter that he wasn't part of the defensive unit. In some kind of uncontrollable, temporary insanity, Lewis jumped onto the field as Magel was flying by and leveled him to the ground. Then the film shows Lewis retreating to the sidelines, ducking out of the way, and trying to hide behind a teammate like no one would see him. He didn't keep Magel from scoring. The referees gave Rice the touchdown anyway. After the game, Lewis was forced to go to the Rice locker room and address their team and apologize for his unwise action. Lost in the jaw-dropping turn of events is that Lewis was one of Alabama's best players and actually scored a touchdown for the Tide earlier in the game. The bizarre event drew national attention. The top entertainment variety show of the day, The Ed Sullivan Show, invited both players to New York to discuss what happened. In front of a national TV audience, Ed Sullivan asked Tommy the logical question, Why did you do it? Lewis replied, Mr. Sullivan, I was just too full of Alabama. I couldn't help it. Tommy's remarks reflect the mindset of the state into which I was born. Alabamians are full, sometimes to a fault, of team loyalty. Not surprisingly, other sensibilities can be dismissed. When it comes to team loyalty, there is no in-between. You'd never hear a true Alabamian say, Oh, I don't care who wins. Auburn or Alabama, either one's fine with me. No, it doesn't work that way. I learned early in life that in regards to football loyalty, there is no middle ground. Sort of like what we learn in Sunday school about money and God. You'll either love one and hate the other. Or the other way around. And if someone couldn't say that this football passion doesn't at least approach some kind of religious affection, then perhaps a better metaphor would be war. Into this environment, I, Joe Billy Thompson, was born in Sugar Hill, Alabama in 1962. As long as I could remember, I wanted to be a running back for the Auburn Tigers. I never said, oh, I'll play for Alabama if they offer me a scholarship. For me, the choice was clear. I would take up college residence at Auburn, the place that the poet Goldsmith called the loveliest village on the plains. In that poem, Goldsmith said that Auburn was a place where crouching tigers await their helpless prey. Somehow, some way, I would be an Auburn Tiger overcoming helpless prey on the football field. And my life would proudly reflect the War Eagle tradition. Something I learned early on was the meaning of one of Auburn's most important traditions and its place in school lore. 
Namely, I discovered why the team of the mascot of Tiger also shouts War Eagle. I was taught that though no one was quite sure, the most popular story had to do with a pet eagle in attendance with a Civil War veteran at the 1892 Auburn-Georgia game, which, by the way, is an annual game still played and called the oldest football rivalry in the South. But I digress. The eagle broke loose from its owner and circled the field while Auburn continued driving towards the Georgia goal line, inspiring the team on to victory. Thus, the Auburn faithful have punctuated the air with a mighty crescendo of the cheer, War Eagle! For well over a century, a rallying cry built around a unified memory of America's greatest bird flying high, assisting the team to success. My parents made sure that I would carry on the Auburn tradition of football excellence, stamping their desire upon me, starting with my name. I was officially born Joe Billy Thompson. Not something more distinguished like Joseph William Thompson, kind of name that the school principal reads out in full at a high school graduation, and everyone says, whoa, listen to that. I didn't know that was your full name. Fancy. Now, it's been customary in Alabama and throughout the South for some parents to expect their children to go by their first and middle names, and they are referred to in such a way that the two names sort of go together, like Catherine Ann or Mary Grace or John Ed. Pronounced hurriedly so the hearer can hardly tell if it's one or two names. The main reason I was named Joe Billy went much deeper than simple Southern tradition. Everyone in Alabama knew that Joe Willie Namath was arguably the greatest or at least the most famous quarterback in Crimson Tide history. Coach Paul Bear Bryant called him the greatest athlete I ever coached. My parents were determined that their son was going to make everyone forget Joe Willie. Joe Billy would be the ultimate Auburn football hero. As soon as some crimson titers start bragging, an Auburn fan would no doubt say proudly, yeah, but let me tell you about Joe Billy. Contrasted with the multitudes of insiders to the football culture of our state, you could always spot someone who weren't from around here. They pronounced Auburn as if there was an emphasis on the burn. They even enunciated the noticeable urn ending rather than sort of a soft ending of the urn, which was commonly heard. With the soft ending, the listener hardly noticed it. Thus, it was pronounced Auburn. However, it was not unusual to find locals in Sugar Hill who varied the ending and more often than not pronounced it Alban, as in A-W-B-U-N. The city slickers who fly in and broadcast the occasional national football telecast of an Auburn game on Channel 8 would pronounce it with the burn, as in all burn, and we always knew they weren't from around here. It amazed me they got paid big money for talking about Auburn football, and they didn't even know how to properly pronounce the team name. When I was around 10, I loved to regularly daydream about my future glory days at Jordan-Hare Stadium. By the way, I noticed when foreigners pronounced the name of the stadium, the beginning of the word was something that sounded like Jordan as in Jordash, jeans. A true Auburn fan knew it was really pronounced Jordan, as in Suge Jordan. Suge, short for sugar, as in Sugar Hill. The greatest coach in Auburn history. That pronunciation of Jordan 
was yet another distinguishing mark of someone who was a cultural outsider. My daydreaming often happened during something exciting like fifth grade social studies class where we were studying the impact of llamas upon the economic development of South America. Suddenly, I'd take the pitch on a 28 sweep and dart and dance my way down the home team sideline right in front of the coaching staff who were hollering in unison and windmilling their arms, go, go, go. I would juke out the Georgia dog linebacker who was first team all Southeastern Conference, making him look absolutely pitiful in my wake. And then I'd simply run over the Tennessee Vol cornerback who was one of the top 25 players in America, a certain NFL first round draft pick. Turning up the heat, I'd outrun the safety from LSU, who, according to the Sporting News magazine, was Mr. All-Universe. I'd cut across midfield and outrun the whole vaunted Ole Miss secondary while the Auburn play-by-play announcer would scream, He's to the 30, the 20, the 10, 5, touchdown, Auburn! Seems like in such moments, the announcer always got away with various flavors of the urn ending. It didn't matter because he was one of the family and everybody had grown used to him. That was just how it was shouted out on the radio. Everyone knew it wasn't normal speech. While 82,000 delirious War Eagle fans were on their feet and out of their minds, shaking a majestic array of blue and orange pom-poms, I'd wait for the referee to catch up with me in the end zone. Upon arrival, after a lengthy wait, I might add, I'd sort of nonchalantly toss the ball to the out-of-breath referee who was signaling touchdown, or sometimes in my dreams just hand it to him as if to say, you looking for this? I wouldn't spike it like the attention-grabbing professional players, or gesture in the stands to some unknown fan showing how great I was, or slam-dunk it over the goalpost. I'd just hand it to the ref as if the TD was the logically expected outcome of what I'd set out to do, and it was really no big deal. Goodness, I had to come to grips with the fact that, actually, there was great pride in my humility. It was just another reminder that it was hard to be humble when you're an Auburn Tiger. Unfortunately, the curtain would invariably crash down on my stellar athletic performance, and my teacher would quickly turn me back to reality with an icy stare and an unmanageable request to summarize the impact of the llamas on highland Peruvian culture. There's yet another sign of my veins flowing blue and orange and covered with pigskin, my knee-jerk reaction emerging from this glorious and unmatched TV jaunt brought snickers, particularly from girls who were no doubt secret admirers of my exceptional football abilities. When I returned to the here and now and mumbled to my teacher, uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, llamas? <laughs> Who are the llamas? Uh, Florida is the Gators, Kentucky, the Wildcats, Mississippi State, the Bulldog. I'm not actually sure what conference the llamas are in, but I'll look it up in the library. She would then write a note and send me to the principal's office for punishment. Poor lady. She would have to come to grips with one of the great questions of life. How do you tame an Auburn tiger? I reckon it wouldn't be easy for her.